Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product. Today, I'm here with Sri, who's the Chief Product and Engineering Officer at Zora. Why don't you kick this off, Sri, by giving us a little overview of your background? Hey, Eric. Thank you for having me on your podcast. So about myself, I've been at Zora for about eight months or so, but my career has gone through quite a bit of winding turns. I, I started at, I would say, in right earnest at a company called PeopleSoft many, many years back. I would say nearly two and a half, three, nearly three closer to three decades back, was an engineer there, grew up as an engineer. Eventually, when PeopleSoft got acquired by Oracle, I was one of their distinguished engineers, had spent a lot of time building a lot of the subsystems, drove a big transformation from PeopleSoft desktop to web in the Y2K days, if many of you remember. Uh, It was quite an interesting transformation. And at 2005, you know, one of the folks in the road for me was, do I go to Oracle and continue the PeopleSoft saga, or do I find my creative energies you put to use elsewhere? And I decided Oracle was not the cultural fit for me. And, you know, took myself to Microsoft after meeting, I would say, the current CEO. I met Satya at that time, and he was the head of the division I joined. I didn't report to him, but I reported to one of his uh, directs. You know, this, the whole direction of going into solutions was quite exciting. And for me, Microsoft up until then was a black box and a couple of leaders helped me unravel it. And what a journey. I spent about 13 years at Microsoft, learned a lot. And in 2018, at the exact 25th year mark of my career, I decided I was going to do something different other than business apps. So I took myself and ran Cisco's collaboration division for a good three years, went through a hyperscale phase, especially serving nearly every person working from home during the COVID phase, amazing journey. And finally ended up at Zora after having a, a brief conversation with Tinzo, I would say December of last year, with the transformation he was thinking of. And here I am, my role focuses on obviously transforming our portfolio. Simply put, you know, moving us from subscription management to the journey of usership, which is nurturing subscriber relationships on behalf of our customers to help them monetize those relationships. So, you know, let's, let's talk about your career for a minute. You know, what jobs or what leaders had the biggest impact on you as you grew as a product leader? Yeah, so the first one I would call out is PeopleSoft. Customer-friendly company. There's not a single company out there who's going to say, hey, I'm not empathetic to customers. Eric, have you ever heard that? They'll all say, yeah, I'm, I am. But the, the people who listen and act are few and far between. And I would say PeopleSoft is one of those companies. It's still the benchmark for how well they treated their customers, how well they listened to their customers. So for me, it was very simply put, the leaders there were have been transformative in my journey. I'll, I'll give you an example you know, for me, it was a person by the name Petros Dermetsis, who's now retired from Workday. He used to head all of product and engineering. He's the one who had a whole bunch of mentorship conversations without asking for a mentorship discussion. 
that led me to understand why we build certain things for customers, like understanding the scenarios, understanding the purpose, understanding the impact. I think that left a lasting impression. I would say the two leaders there, Petros and Dave Duffield, who was a founder of PeopleSoft and founder of Workday. And obviously, similar experiences at Microsoft, many a leader, when I joined Microsoft, the first thing I noticed was, boy, you know, so many smart people, you know, so many energized capabilities across the landscape of tech. And I, I think Bill Gates left a lasting impression in his second incarnation as chief uh, technologist for Microsoft and the Satya. I didn't have much interaction in his first foray, but in the second one I did. And it, it was quite amazing to see him engage at a level of understanding that very few people at uh, leadership levels do. Like he was deep in technology, knew where technology was headed, and perspectives were quite amazing to, you know, simply ascertain here. Awesome. You know, you talked about Microsoft. Now I have to ask you, like, what was it like to be a product leader at Microsoft, especially because the time you were there was when they were starting to invest heavily in the cloud, right? So they're... Yeah. You know, you have this big kind of, you know, uh, existing desktop kind of business, so to speak, and now this big transition to the cloud. Talk me through that process and, and the impact on your product leadership on the product organization and how you built the company. Yeah, so Microsoft went through many a transformation. You know, we obviously, you know, going from on-prem software selling and the desktop to pure cloud SaaS was quite transformative. But the most important thing was I had the opportunity of not only transforming the business line, but also being nearly the first SaaS service on Azure. You know, right there, in-house, it brings a whole bunch of responsibility, Eric, because you're not only bringing SaaS to market, you're also making sure Microsoft's technology can stand the test of general purpose SaaS. So you, we had mixed responsibilities, and you had to do it with PNL in mind. You know, your profit and loss as a GM of business you can't let gross margins suffer. You've got to make sure customers have a transition plan. You've got to bring partners along for the ride. It's more than technology transformation. You know, I think that portion was tractable. The bigger thing was cultural transformation, how engineering teams think about product in a SaaS world, how your partner go-to-markets change because Microsoft, for the most part, is 100% partner go-to-market. Partners are used to this upfront sale, and now you're getting only about one thirty-sixth of it along the way. You know, just think about that, right? That itself is change in many ways. So I think at Microsoft, we all learned together. Every single day was uh, learning with a different sense of passion and purpose for what we wanted SaaS to be. And if you remember, there was a book that Satya wrote at that time. It was called Hit Refresh, Eric. I don't know whether you read it or not. But that book was all about, you know, the mindset you bring forward. And I would say the key thing I learned was to apply continuous learning. That is, the things you learn yesterday don't necessarily help you tomorrow. And you got to learn from your experiences and make it better so that, you know, you get automated, you get scale out of it. So Carol Dweck's book, Growth Mindset, was, I would say, the Bible for how you wanted SaaS processes to work, per se. Yeah, I haven't read the book, but I'll have to check that out. So we, we talked about you know, some of the challenges, you know, you mentioned one, which is the technical challenge. Talk to me about that, the, the roadmap of moving from desktop to web cloud and how daunting that can be for a company of Microsoft size. 
I think it's it's daunting from the standpoint of you know the speed and the cycle of innovation changes completely. So you go from 24 month delivery cycles to nearly weekly and monthly updates. You know, think about that, right? And along the way, the additional level of complexity in business apps is change management along the way. You, you can obviously make technology move at a rapid pace, but how do you make sure the functions that your customers did before an update actually work well after the update? That's kind of key to enterprise SaaS. There is, I would say, nearly 70 to 80% of enterprise SaaSes are still trying to figure out that secret sauce of how do I keep my customers on the innovation train without disrupting them, bringing them along for the ride. And I don't think that uh, nut has been cracked. At Microsoft, the most further along, and th those were early learnings, incrementalism, flighting, testing, understanding what your customers are doing, putting the right telemetry systems in place. What SaaS does for you is you've got all the listening systems and the data all along the way. You don't have to bring opinions in. You can be heavily data-driven. And we took that to heart. We built the systems that basically gave us insights into how customers perceived our products, what worked, what did not work. And we spent a lot of time building the technologies that you know, do continuous integration, continuous deployment, based on you know, feedback from customer, uh, from usage itself. I would say that's the secret of success in SaaS. And that's a lesson I've carried forward along the way. So it's transforming teams to understand that feedback is not only a gift, feedback is something you act on every single day, every release. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I think you can get access to so much data in the SaaS world and you need to make use of it. What made you decide to leave and move into the, I guess, the video conferencing world? Uh, like I told you, it was exactly the 25th year of my working career. It's, that's a quarter of a century. That's yeah. huge. And for me, it was, I had a chat with one of the leaders of an equity company, one of the largest equity companies that basically have, is a SaaS company. They hold SaaS companies. And, you know, they... They buy them, they sell them, that's what they do. And one of the conversations I had with him was, how much are you learning every single day? Are you comfortable in your jobs? And at that point, one of the self-reflection moments for me was I was very comfortable doing what I was. And you know, both that book hit refresh I referred to and these conversations led me to believe I had to put myself in uncomfortable situations so that I could spur my learning exercise again. So I took myself away from business apps altogether and decided to do something different. And I really believed in teamwork. I still believe in teamwork. The power of the team is what gets us through. So for me, it was, how do I leverage the power of the team through the lens of uh, digital technologies? So for me, Cisco was giving me the opportunity to go transform their collaboration suite. And you know, it was a great learning opportunity to learn how media worked, how team collaboration worked, how consumer SaaS worked, how consumer SaaS being sold through the lens of businesses into businesses worked. It was just an amazing learning experience of the dichotomy of um, owned data centers to public cloud migration. You know, it's just an amazing experience outside awesome. the Microsoft cocoon, I would say. Awesome. That's cool. It's interesting to hear about product leaders that, you know, constantly challenge themselves, right? And want to learn new things. I, I think, you know, I ask a question at the end, three words to describe yourself. But in one of the questions that comes up a lot is like curious. 
where you can see that in, in product leaders, like this curiosity about how technology works or how different marketplaces work. And, you know, it's a thread. It's definitely a thread we see in product managers along with some other characteristics. So talk to me about how product leadership as a whole has changed throughout your career. I imagine a lot of things were the same, but but things I imagine change too as you move through different deployment mechanisms for software. Uh, absolutely. I think um, product leaders have, Again, going back to that growth mindset, product leaders are truly business owners. They are entrepreneurs on the edge. And the best product leaders are one that are ready to sacrifice their existing product for a better product of the future. And if you, you know, this is key, Eric, because if you look at many, you know, how innovation happens today, there'll be a, a great company out there with a lot of product and then they get usurped or, you know, the rug swept under them by a startup that comes along the way and, you know, eats your lunch. That's because they bring, you know, product managers in those small organizations, repaint the canvas and start with an empty canvas. And product managers every single day have to bring in unfettered thinking into saying, you know, let's not worry about the constraints of today. Let's understand what the customer of the future wants. So designing for the future is one of the hallmarks of product management. And I think that exercise has only become better with the advent of technology, with the advent of listening systems. And if you look at the traditional innovation cycle, if, if I might, it was three years in software, in on-prem, and now it's down to a week or less. In consumer SaaS, it's like hours. So, you know, basically product managers are ones that are on the pulse. They're thinking about the future. They basically have this fortitude of seeing the forest through the woods, unlike others, and bringing a lot others along for the ride. So it's one of those things where you're harnessing technology towards the furtherance of some other business purpose. And that business purpose needs to take importance. And the second part is how do you bring scale thinking to it? Yeah. Talk to me about scale thinking. So I think SaaS in particular, I've seen many a SaaS model fail because, you know, organizations did not bring scale thinking. Scale thinking for me is, you know, in at least software driven SaaS world in, you know, places like Zora, where we are thinking about, you know, journey to usership. That is, you know, really nurturing that subscriber relationship. Scale thinking is all about making sure there is no place for hero work. Seriously no place for hero work, which is all the way from how you engineer, how you do incident management, how you do software triages, how you think about your next features, things of that sort. You need to have empathy, but there is no emotional quotient attached to how you attack these problems. If somebody's working 20 hours a day and saying, I solved this problem, the bigger question you've got to ask is, why did you have to spend 20 hours? Why could you not do it as part of your design? Why did you even hit the issue? So it's those hard questions that make up scale thinking. And scale thinking, to be honest with you, is taken from a product manager's lens. A line-level product manager often gets attached to the features they're building. And scale thinking is, is this really working? What do you have to tune? Should you shed it at the right time and move on to something else? These are hard problems. Scale thinking is about how can I see maximized potential out of what I'm building towards the furtherance of the customers I serve. 
And I would say it's an art form more than a science, Eric. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people in the product space, especially younger product managers, tend to get obsessed with the product as opposed to the problem, right? And it's oh, like totally. attached to the what they've built, the features they've built. And then it, it's hard to look at things from a different perspective because maybe the underlying you know, opportunity has changed and warrants a, a fresh look, right? And, and they're, mm-hmm. they're more attached to the product as opposed to the, you know, the value they're bringing. Yeah, and I'll tell you, at Zora, we have something quite interesting, very different. I haven't seen this with SaaS companies. We have a group called Subscribe Strategy Group. So what these guys do, this group does, is engages management teams across the globe and pretty much helps us hone down the problem set. And they're not part of the product group. All they're doing is they're basically understanding trends, behaviors, adoption methods, and mechanisms in the subscriber space. And when we talk about scale thinking, you know, understanding of the problem and staying true to the problem often requires somebody to look at it from the outside and kind of keep reminding you, are you really sticking close to what you're supposed to be doing? And I think we have one of those riches here. Quite interesting. So let's jump into Zora. Talk to me about Zora and, and their mission and what got you excited, what made you jump over there? So at Zora, we have a very simple mission. We believe in helping organizations nurture relationships with subscribers to help them monetize and engage these subscribers for life. It's that simple. It's monetization of subscriber relationship through continuous nurturing providing the best experience and value. You know, you could use either one of those. Now, that's a lot of, you know, bombastic talk. What does that really mean? It basically means that we understand everything about the subscriber on behalf of our customers. We understand, help our customers create the right subscription plans, the right monetization plans and offers. We bring agility to this trade and we help customers get services off the ground with the right level of flighting and, you know, technologies of that sort, you know. The prime example is, uh, you know, the video conference we are, you and I are on. Zoom is a prime example. You know, we support these customers in everything we need, you know, in terms of back office, offer management, understanding usage, understanding, you know, entitlements, understanding, you know, where you should be optimizing your offering and things of that sort. That's what we do. We are the de facto standard of agility for organizations like Zoom. It's awesome. What's the big challenges in Zora? The biggest challenge I would say is how do we take all the data we have around the subscriber and convert that into effective information, intentional information in order to drive proactive action. So basically, what does that mean? You have a subscriber on a particular service, they churn. What if you knew all the leading indicators and you were able to advise your customer that you need to do this, this, and this so that this person doesn't churn? I think that's effective information. So our transformation is how do we take the massive amount of data we have and convert that into an engaging subscriber lifecycle. That, I would say, is the biggest problem we have. Yeah, it's, that's interesting because we think about similar issues at Pendo, right, where we're getting product data and we're helping people do guidance is, is like how, you know, we can vi- help them visualize that data, visualize flows and paths and how customers are logging in, aren't logging in. But then there's this insights component. How do we make that easier for people to be more predictive? Like when are people ready to upsell, you know, or buy a, an upsold version of, you know, your product? When is the cross-sell opportunity right? How do you identify people that may end up churning? 
you know, that kind of stuff is, is really interesting to think about how do you take these huge data sets and trillions uh-huh. and turn those into, you know, insights and do that automatically for product management as opposed to, you know, having to have them build their own models. So interesting mm-hmm. challenges, you know, that we're looking at from similar challenges from very different directions, right? So what makes you so bullish on subscription economy? I mean, you know, obviously that's the heart of Zora. Mm-hmm. So I think um, what makes me bullish is what got me here in the first place. I saw these challenges at SaaS services. I have I have operated myself. You know, I operated it at Dynamics 365. I've operated it at Cisco WebEx. And here I am kind of operating the, the engines for a SaaS business. And, you know, one of the beauties of this is I see the subscription economy at play across 1,300 plus customers we have, which is quite amazing. You're not just sitting in the cockpit of Zora, you're sitting at the cockpit of transformation of all these companies. So it's it's an amazing place to be at. And you know, the subscription economy to be to me is not only about subscriptions, it's also about the next level, which is usage. And what it is doing is it's democratizing products far greater uh, in terms of usage than it has ever. Like when we were just in product sale, if you sold to a million people, the subscriptions gets you to 10 million people. And usage gets you to 100 million people. So think of the linear scale of adoption you get by, you know, just people coming in and saying, hey, I'm going to just use this particular product for this particular function, and that's it. So it basically increases your reach, brings a level of equity in this world that is unimaginable, right? You know, it's quite literally, you know, taken to the education world. You can buy a book for $100 or you could rent it for an hour for 50 cents. Like, just think of the reach you get to. You know, customers like Check do this on a regular basis. And I think we've also helped people change the business models. When the COVID thing hit, you know, we had Fender, a guitar manufacturing company that basically started offering free lessons, music lessons to a whole bunch of folks. And they, they hit more than... I would say a million subscribers, a 10x increase in subscriber base, but they're still nurturing, right? So our belief is anything as a service is going to expand across industries. I see it in agriculture, you know, with the COVID wave, I see a whole bunch of people gardening in their backyards a lot more than they ever have. Gardening as a service has taken off. If you don't believe me, there is manure as a service. Yeah, so, no, I, I'm familiar with the manure as a service. We have a service here that, uh, that provides that along with uh, composting as a service, right? It, yeah. It's really interesting how all that's taken off. I wish I knew about the Fender one because I bought a Fender guitar at the beginning of COVID and my lesson part didn't work quite as well, you know? <laughs> to- totally get it. And, you know, you've got to look at analyst reports and such. People may say the subscription economy is growing at 30% and stuff. But the penetration is only 5%, 8%, 10%. That's 30% growth on that. I expect it to keep on growing and doubling and tripling over the next four or five years. People are shedding materialistic attachment to products and they are attaching themselves to experience and value a lot more. That's basically, you know, it crosses um, generational boundaries and that's where we're headed. It's about, you know, how can I get the best experience possible? And it can only happen in the subscription economy. It's not only guitars and manure and things like that, automobiles. It's uh, 
tires as a service. It's spanning industries. It was limited to SaaS. It's totally crossed the chasm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I know there's a, a company, I, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and there's a company here, you know, that does air filters as a service, right? Uh, yeah. Well, refrigerator water filters. You don't have to go buy them anymore. They just come as refill packs. That's a subscription. Yeah, yeah, I totally get it. And I, there's another company that's doing sensors that'll just know, like, when you're out of olive oil. Exactly. And as soon as, you know, you're going to run out, they'll ship you, you know, more olive oil. So there's interesting applications of that, too, of, like, the reoccurring services, like you get an air filter every X number of months, or mm -hmm. the consumption-based, like you get new olive oil when you're within two days of running out or three days of running out, whatever happens to be. It's really interesting. I do, I, I like you, I am bullish on the subscription economy. I see it as uh, a huge opportunity for tech, for entrepreneurship. Yeah, there, there's just so many different things we could be and will be doing there. And one final thing I would say there is we at Zora, learn from an ever-increasing landscape of customers how, of how the subscription economy works, and we bring that to the next customers who join us. That's so much better than DIY projects in this space. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting. Uh, it made me think about like, okay, you know, like, does Zora, you know, make sense to work with companies like this sensor company that's doing, you know, usage-based fulfillment, usage-based subscriptions, right? You can see this expansion of the opportunity for Zora, you know, all based around this, this fundamental service, i.e. a subscription. You know, there's a few things that we touched on as we were going through all of this that I wanted to get back to. You know, first was going back to Microsoft and you were talking about the big change of moving, you know, to a subscription economy, a SaaS economy away from desktop. And one of the things you talked about, which I think is really interesting, and I feel like we'll be remiss if we don't touch on a little more detail, was the relationship with partners that Microsoft had and the challenge in moving them through that model. Can you talk a little bit more about that for product leaders out there who have a, a strong partner ecosystem and you know might be moving from an on-prem model to a services model similar to how Microsoft went that has this whole partner ecosystem to take into account? Yeah, so absolutely. I think it's a great question. First, my advice to product managers is take this part, your distribution, extremely seriously. Extremely seriously. The go to market, your distribution, who takes you to market, super important. Why? Firstly, in the SaaS world, you cannot outsource experience. You have to control it and you have to use your partners as a conduit. Secondly, at least at Microsoft, I would say partners for partners there, these were businesses, they were like second mortgages for them. So you got to think from a partner's lens empathetically on what it means for them to make that transformation from an on-prem sale that gives you, you know, I would say that sugar rush, the high. And now you're saying, you know, you get a, a small dose of that high, 136 for the next three years. So it's a business model transformation. For some, it's, it's too hard to pick. So we did pretty much work with our partners on how that would happen, you know, because if you were making this much, now you're kind of reducing and making a lot less. And so it was a, you know, we did things like, you know, pay them six months of incentives for transforming, work through business models, build scale mechanisms for them to understand, sell to more customers. You know, if you remember one of the things I said, with on-prem, it took you 18 months to sell and implement. With SaaS, you were doing it in one or two months. So, you know, now their addressable market was growing, helping them see that, scale to it, 
has made many a successful story. So my simple guidance to product managers is spend the time understanding your distribution, think from their lens, put on their hat, which is very hard to do, and then make decisions. Because often I see product managers, GMs, make a whole bunch of assumptions that are not true. And until you have those, the human dialogue with the other person's hat on your head, you will not make the right decisions. Yeah, thanks. The other thread I wanted to touch on was big data. I mean, we talked about data and huge sources Mm -hmm. of data and how we utilize them in digital services, but there's this whole accessibility and inclusivity part of that too. I wanted to get your thoughts on that, how we better utilize data to make digital services more accessible, more inclusive. Yeah, so I think the very first principle with data that every SaaS service, every software business has to understand is it is not your data, silly. It is not. We're all custodians of customers' data. That's super important to understand in the enterprise business. So you got to design with that principle. So the other thing is, you know, the subscriptions, where we are, it's a merry confluence between so many piece parts. It's a merry confluence, you know, basically we call it journey to usership. What is it? Journey to usership is basically understanding that intricate relationship between product, its delivery, and the customers it serves. Obviously, we generate a whole bunch of data in terms of, you know, in product sale, it's one time you sell, you ship, and you're done. Whereas in the subscription, life starts at the sale of the subscription. Now, you know everything about, you know, what did the customer do? How much did they adopt? Did they go on vacation? Did their usage drop? You know, renew cycles, upgrade cycles, pause cycles, churn, you know, all those capabilities come into play. And I would say both from a, you know, the first thing is we are custodians of this data. We're custodians of democratizing this data. So we basically enable customers to understand behavior and act on the behavior from different lenses, Eric. That's pretty much how we think about it. And, you know, obviously it pulls in, you know, you got to take data and make sure you're not looking at it from just one lens. You got to bring this, you know, diverse perspectives to it. That's where you get an usually army of engineers. You render it to through user research studies that have changed quite a bit. You engage with customers and basically get their perspectives. You, you know, today we are, I would say, globally diverse engineering pool already. That's the nature of the world. I think Thomas Friedman declared in 2005, the world is flat. And that's true for how we think about data and inclusively making decisions. So this has been fun. I wanted to ask you a couple of final questions. What's your favorite product? What's my favorite product? So let me talk what I'm doing at Zora. And I, I hope to make it one of the, the best products I ever build. And we're basically talking about monetize anything as a service. We call it unified monetization. That is, we want to simplify the ability for customers to sell an offer, try it, iterate it, and basically get faster returns on the capital expenditure that they have. We believe helping transform product-centric companies into the subscription economy through the lens of something like unified monetization is kind of that secret sauce where you don't no longer have to be just bullish on it. You can actually see it in action. So for me, I'm most excited about how do I influence a higher degree of growth? It's like the dream for every product manager, this kind of a a problem opportunity. 
And I would say in terms of the my favorite product, I think it's the iPhone. You know, January 7, 2007, if you guys remember, was the date the iPhone was launched. Changed the world. It uh, changed how we engage as subscribers. It basically increased the reach. I think kids know how to pinch faster than they learn ABCD. Yeah, um, no, it, it is interesting. I mean, I, I remember buying an iPhone when it first came out, and I actually carried two phones for quite a while because I had my BlackBerry, and I could type so much faster on the BlackBerry and replying to emails and sending text messages. And then the iPhone was like this new thing that, like, that's where my music was. So instead of an iPod now, I had the iPhone, and I could use it for phone calls. And apps at that point weren't apps. They were, like, websites, right, that were kind of masks or, or uh you know, faked up application, so to speak. But it's very interesting to see how far that's evolved and how quickly it's stuck, even though some of the experiences on the iPhone, like sending messages, sending emails, were a lot harder than the old technology. But just the the design factor, the form factor, and integrating things like music in with your phone right from the beginning, how, how that kind of just, you know, meant the end of the Blackberries of the world. It was definitely a cool time. I can't believe when you think about it that that was almost 25 years ago. Or sorry, it was almost... 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a while ago. So, but it's still a favorite product. And I... Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, we we saw the the decline of BlackBerry shortly after the iPhone uh, came out. So, crazy world. One final question for you. Three words to describe yourself. First word, always want to learn. Learn, learn, learn. Growth mindset. Uh, second, tenacity. Just never give up towards the quest of exceptionalism. And thirdly, I would say empathetic to our customers, customer obsessed to the core, blow through all walls for customers. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about uh, Zora and the subscription economy. Look forward to helping each one of you listening on the journey to user ship. <laughs>